Well, as you can tell, they're preparing um, a little more animated. My wife tells me that if, uh, if they tied my hands behind my back, I'd be unable to speak. <laughs> She's probably right. So. Today we're going to talk about something that it's kind of hard to define, I think, for a lot of people. It's, it's like the word love, the word hope is. If you define love, right, you'd tell me how you love somebody, how you show love, how you receive love, right? How you've done the kind act for somebody, how you sacrificed for somebody else. But if I asked you to tell me, if I told you to ask me how to define hope, how would you define that? What is hope? Are we talking about the hope where, God, I hope I get that job? God, I hope I win the lottery, right? <laughs> you had some people talking about that too. But where do you find your hope? I know for those of us in this room, and there's a lot of us here, that we find our hope in Jesus Christ, right? Amen. It's not in this life, it's in the next one. So what happens when life punches you in the face? What happens when your hope is stolen from you? What do you do with that? How do you cope with that? Where do you find or rekindle your hope? Well, my story, like a lot of other people's, um, starts when my grandparents were... No, I'm kidding. We're not going to go that far back. <laughs> uh, my story very much is wrapped up in my wife's story. And if you can imagine a beautiful young girl, four-year-old, blonde little girl, just having the time of her life, playing with family and friends and her, her favorite dog. I mean, surrounded by lots of family. Both of her parents are children of, they have eight kids in the family, right? On mom's side, on dad's side. So lots of uncles and aunts and, and, and cousins and all kinds of stuff, just enjoying life as any four-year-old should, right? The bad stuff's not supposed to happen to you. Well, fast forward a couple years to nine years old. My wife is the second in line. She's got a brother who's two years older than her. Well, she also had a younger sister born way younger than her. You know, she was about nine and a half years old when her little sister was born. So this few-month-old baby, her brother's playing around with this baby, with their little sister, and he accidentally sets the baby on my wife's arm. And just pain, unusual, not really as much as you should have for just something so simple. It wasn't like a smash or cranked it or wrenched it around or anything like that, but just a lot of pain. So, and it kept going, just kept hurting, kept, kept just, it, it wouldn't go away. So they kept trying to take her to doctors to figure out what in the world was going on. Well, over the next couple of years, they figured out that she has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, that it's not just local, that it's all over her entire body. And so it moved up her arm, down her other arm, all over her entire body. So if you can imagine, from about the ages of 9 to 13, 14, 15 years old, not being able to play anymore, not being able to ride your bike anymore, hurting so much that literally just laying in bed in a ball, crying, and having to have your parents pick you up and take you into the shower to take a shower, because you can't move on your own. There are good days in there, but there's a lot of bad days. Missing a lot of school, a lot of interaction. Also, towards her high school years, a doctor was giving her a medication, and he wanted it to work, but the medication made her so sick. 
literally just hearing the name of the medication would make her throw up. The doctor said, she's faking it. She just wants to be home with mom where it's comfortable and doesn't want to go to school, right? So they had her going to psychiatrists. You had her seeing people going, yeah, it's all in her head. It's all in her head. The pain's all in her head. So having to live with that, having to justify your pain to other people too, I mean, just imagine that. Her parents were awesome. They were so supportive. They did everything they needed to. She, when she was hurting, she got to stay out of class. But she missed out on a lot of things. They finally found a medication when she was in her junior year, the summer before her junior year. Medication, and she started taking it. It was an injection she had to take twice a week that worked miracles. I mean, she, was, she got to go to school. Finally, when I actually met her, in our senior year, met her in science class, right? It was the best day of my life. Yeah, the jury's still out for her. <laughs> but I saw her over there. She was a beautiful young woman. I didn't know her. Apparently, we had met a few years early, but I didn't remember it. This beautiful young woman, and I knew I had no shot with her, right? I mean, I was... I was the same height I am now, but I was about 130 pounds, zero muscle, okay? <laughs> Not that have a lot now. But I knew if I was going to do anything, I was going to use my humor, right? So that's how I won her over. And we, we started dating. We started dating and spending a lot of time together. And then she had to go in for a wrist replacement. You see, when I met my wife, her wrists, her, her hands were already so bad. Her hands were deteriorating and they were so, so bad that her hands were actually going to fall off of her wrists. The arthritis was so bad. They had to do a total wrist replacement surgery on both wrists in order for her to even be able to use it. And they go, well, here's the thing. If we do this wrist replacement surgery, guess what? You're not going to be able to use your wrist much. You're going to have very limited mobility, only this much flexion on both ways. They said, you're just going to have to live with a new normal. First time we ever heard that phrase. Like, that's okay. We'll figure it out. She's very strong-willed. She's stubborn. It's a good thing. And so she got through it. The first surgery, it was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot to get through. They missed a couple of things, but she worked through it. She worked through getting her hands straight. Uh, her, her wrist is as, as, as strong as it possibly could with what she had to work with. And then we went in to go to do the second one. Well, they said her left wrist was so underdeveloped and small that they actually had to create an, an, a replacement for it that there was the smallest that they'd ever made. So they had to push things back. So an extra nine months, they got it. She went in, had the surgery. Thank goodness the second surgery was better than the first one. And she still never, the one thing, if you've ever seen my wife, you would never know she's in pain. For so many, I mean, you would never know she's in pain. She'll never tell you. She'll never complain. Even though when she lives life on a normal day at about a level four pain, where for me, that'd be level seven on the ground praying for death, right? Women, you're built different. <laughs> you can just take a lot more pain than us, right? Yeah, amen. <laughs> amen. But she always had a smile. And people would tell her, I don't even know how you get through the day. How do you, how do, you do this? How do, you, how do you even get through everything? And she's like, I just do. What's the alternative? What's the choice? 
And so she, she didn't even realize the inspiration that she was being for so many people. So we're just living life, right? Finally get married, end up having kids right away. Now you see, we weren't sure that she could have children with as bad as her arthritis is. Um, so we weren't trying to have kids, we weren't trying not to, God's will be done. And he blessed us right away, <laughs> which was awesome. And she loved her pregnancy. I mean, the, the, the body and hormones of, of a pregnant woman can be amazing. I know there are women out there that are going, I want to hit you right now. <laughs> it wasn't as fun for me. But for her, it was amazing. Her, her body, instead of having to take her shot once every or twice a week, she got to the point where she only had to take it once every six weeks. It was awesome. She loved being pregnant. Had a pretty easy delivery. I say that I'm on this side, honey. I know. I know. It's, <laughs> it's easier for me to say over here. But she did really well with it. And then after our first son was born, our oldest was born, she kind of crashed. About four weeks after, it took her to really, really get back up and going and get back into normal. So she was like, great. We ended up having our second child. Again, same thing while she was pregnant with him. It was amazing. And she really just enjoyed being pregnant. I mean, partly because she felt a little bit better from normal, right? Um, but she just loved that bonding time with the kids. Now, my kids were always stinkers from, from, uh, from the time they were in the belly. Uh, they'd always really move and kick me in the face whenever I'd lay on her belly. But it's one of my favorite things to do. So after our second child was born, she took about six weeks to recover. Um, after our, our, that was our second son, after our daughter was born, and they were all born about two years and three months apart. You know, we had a little bit, of, little bit of time in there for her to be able to recover, take care of kiddos. Um, after our daughter was born, our daughter had to be in the NICU for a little bit just to make sure they were worried about a couple of things. The day that she came home, my wife went into the hospital with pneumonia and a uterine infection. And we kind of put two and two together and we're like, eh, you know what, this is probably about as many kids as we ought to have. Because she just kept getting worse and worse after each pregnancy, the time it took her to recover. Great while she had them, just took a lot more time. Well, that's when life really took a turn for the worst. About every six months to a year, she would start getting fevers. We didn't know why. There was no rhyme or reason. We hadn't changed any medications, no lifestyle change, no, nothing that really pointed to it. So we went on that journey for about four years. Every six months, she'd go into the hospital, our local hospital, we live in central Nebraska, or to her specialist who lives in Omaha, who she dealt with, who deals with autoimmune disorders and things like that. And she would go in for a week at a time, sometimes two weeks at a time. They'd run every test on her known to mankind, sometimes twice. And they're going, we don't know what it is. So of course your mind starts racing, right? What, it, what if it's this? What if it's that? And the symptoms just didn't look like anything. So we, for four years, we tried to track this down. And then about 11 years ago, right after Thanksgiving, she got really sick, uh, was in the hospital at our local hospital. And they said, it's something autoimmune. We know it is. We've got to send you down to your specialist in Omaha. So after one of the worst ambulance rides I've ever heard in my life, um, she got to the hospital. She had a fever of 106. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, put some cold blankets on her when she finally said she had a bad fever. 
I mean, if you guys know anything about that in the medical field, I mean, that's the part where you start losing brain. I mean, it really starts affecting a lot of things. So they got her evened out. They said, you know what? The medication, and she had switched medications in there because the one had quit working that was working so well. She got a new one that was working just as well, and she only had to take it once a week. They said, well, that's a bad thing about these medications. It, it fixes one thing, but it causes two more problems. So she was diagnosed with, um, with medicationally induced lupus in her kidney. And we're going, okay. So he goes, yeah, the medication that's working for you right now, you can't have. Uh, because it's, now it's gotten to the point where it's not just keeping the symptoms up, it's causing more issues. So we go, okay, well, whatever we got to do, they got her stabilized. She ended up coming home. We went there uh, right after Thanksgiving. We came home a few days before Christmas. Well, she was very weak, you know, had been in the hospital, got through Christmas okay. All of a sudden, get just a little few days after Christmas, and December 28th, she went into the hospital again with pneumonia. Again, after you get it one time, you can get it so much easier, a second and a third and a fourth time in your life. Went in with pneumonia, we're like, no big deal, we've got this. She went in on a Friday, they hooked her up to an IV, she was getting stuff. So through the 29th and the 30th, Saturday, Sunday, she was doing good. They actually still had the IV in her arm, but they had undid, she wasn't attached to the bag. So finally on Sunday, she actually got to take a shower. If anybody's ever been in a hospital, you know how important having a shower is, right? <laughs> she took a shower, and I was at home with our three kids, and her family was helping out. We have great friends and family, very, very good family. My in-laws are awesome. My family's awesome. Amen. <laughs> but uh, I went to work at that time on Monday. They kept her Sunday just, you know, to make sure an extra day. On Monday, I went to work to my two jobs. Um, have to be my first one at 7.30 at night. Didn't get off my second one until after 9 o'clock at night. I got off of my second one, my second job, delivering pizzas, and uh, I literally walked out of the front door of Papa John's and my phone rang. I was like, well, this is weird. I don't recognize the number, but it said Good Samaritan, which is the name of the hospital. And they said, by the way, this happens to be December 31st, New Year's Eve. It's also my birthday. And they uh, hadn't gotten a call. She hadn't gotten home. Sometimes she just stays an extra day in the hospital. So it's, it wasn't out of the normal that these type of things can happen. I figured I'd just take her home on the New Year. What a great way to celebrate a New Year. And the nurse goes, uh, Mr. Zimbelman, um, your wife is having some problems breathing. We've taken her down to the ICU. You probably need to come over here as soon as you can. Said, we're not sure everything's wrong. You know, she just kind of had a little bit of problem breathing. So we're just trying to help her out. You may want to get over here as quickly as you can. And the voice on the phone didn't match the feeling inside of me because I'm going, it's, it feels like it's so much ser more serious. And I know she wanted to make sure I didn't drive erratically and get into an accident trying to get over there. So I called my family, I called her family, I said, something's wrong, get there. Go over to the hospital, this is 9, 10 at night, and you walk out and there's nothing. There, there's literally chairs, a TV, a door this way with a lock pad, a key, a numbered pad, a door this way with a keypad, this one's to the heart center, this one's to the ICU. If you don't have a code, you can't get in. And so I called the nurse, what, what is going on? Where do I go? She's like, oh, where are you? Here's where I am. She goes, oh, you're right where you need to be. They'll tell you as soon as she's ready to go. Well, my wife will tell you I'm a pretty impatient man. <laughs> um, a gal came off the elevator in plain street clothes and just walked over and pushed the door open. She didn't put in a code or nothing. So I'm like, I'm going to find out where my wife is. 
and I wish I hadn't. Because <laughs> I walked back to a, a room full of nurses and doctors working on her, trying to intubate her. And I see this big tube over there of blood. And I don't know what it's from. And after an hour, the doctor finally comes out. And he said, I've done thousands of these. That was the hardest one I've ever done. If your wife didn't have as strong a heart as she has, she wouldn't have made it. I said, why was it so hard? He said, well, you see the arthritis, her jaw can't open as far as, it can, as a normal person. Also, her arthritis had fused three vertebrae in the back of her neck, so her neck can't extend back as far as it should. So they had to use a special tool. Normally, it takes 60 seconds, 90 seconds, if you're having a tough time intubating somebody. It took them well over an hour. They got everything figured out. She had pneumonia. She went septic. There was a bunch of different stuff. I mean, we didn't know if she was coming home. We prayed. We had no idea. <laughs> My mother-in-law, before I came down here to talk about this, she reminded me I'd forgotten there was just so much going on at the time. But the whole family sat there praying in the waiting room for, for her to get better. After a week in the ICU, she got, uh, got to second level ICU, you know, next step ICU, progressive ICU, not general population. But then she went to, you know, you know got to the regular hospital room. And after two months, she finally got to come home. Yeah. But the great, amazing thing was is we watched God do some miracles in her life where she came home. Yes. She came home, and I, I, I was out of sick leave. The church had helped us with house payments and different stuff through this whole ordeal. I had to shove my pride down and ask for help because I wanted to do it all myself, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it all myself. Right? Her sister had literally quit her job to help take care of my kids because we couldn't afford babysitter. She actually had to live at her parents' house. We had this big air mattress, you know, ones that are you know, about, about normal bed height and really nice and comfortable because she was so weak that she couldn't go up and down stairs and she needed somebody to help her back and forth from the bathroom. So her family was take, helping take care of that, helping her with that. Well, I would sometimes be passing in the day between my two jobs while she was trying to recover. So she went home, they put her on physical therapy, right? Of course, she's so weak, she's been in the hospital for months. So as she was doing that, the first physical therapy that she went into, she had to be in a wheelchair, of course. A week later, she went for a second physical therapy and walked in the door, and the nurse's jaw literally dropped. Like, what are you doing? I, I thought I had physical therapy. <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, how are you walking? So we watched God do miracle after miracle after miracle. Amen. And 11 years ago, my wife might have been, not been here. We watched him be faithful with us as we went through these things. And she kept on going. I ended up getting a new job. Things worked out. She got a little bit better. She got healthier. Went through this process. Then about six years ago, she started going, having some more issues. Couldn't get it figured out. Um, she was trying to lose weight, but then she really started losing weight. Um, at a normal weight, my wife walks around at, I'm not saying that, okay. <laughs> 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 
but, but she, she got down. She's five foot four, and she got down to about 100 pounds. And we couldn't figure out why. Well, are you not eating? Oh, she eats. She loves to eat. My, my wife and I, it's one of our favorite pastimes is sharing good food together. But couldn't figure out why she was losing weight. So went to her doctor in Omaha, went to other doctors. They couldn't get it figured out. Went to a specialist out in Colorado Springs, and he said, this is what I think it is. Um, we think it's something called Stills disease. Uh, if you've never heard of it, it's called AOSD, adult onset Stills disease. If you've never heard of it, don't worry, most doctors haven't because it only happens to one out of about 100,000 people. Another autoimmune disease. Shortly after that, she also contracted, well, she got something called Raynaud syndrome where your fingers and toes and go get really, really cold. The circulation is bad. It can be really, really bad if you don't pay attention to it, go purple and numb. You can literally lose or they'll have to amputate if it gets bad enough. Again, new normal, new normal. But she just takes it like a champ. I mean, she keeps on going. She doesn't lose hope. She keeps on going. And to the point where she is such an inspiration for the people around her, it's, it's amazing. People don't complain about pain when they're around my wife, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm a, never mind, I'm a good. <laughs> Very good friends who literally, she, she's in pain and she, she says, I don't complain because you inspire me. Then a few years back, if you guys remember 2020 at all, right? I mean, nobody remembers that year. <laughs> well, about June of 2020, my wife started having some neurological issues. Started out, her eyes were just kind of, would go kind of funky. She couldn't really, like, just, just couldn't tell if it was stuff in her eyes or, and she's had bad eyes for a long time. Couldn't get it figured out. Well, then on top of that, her toes started going numb. But it wasn't from the Raynaud's. She's actually had that under control pretty well. Had nothing to do with it. Her feet started going numb. Started going numb from the toes up to the ankle, then all the way up to the knee. It got into her hands, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. Went all the way up to her shoulders, all the way up into her midsection here, pretty much everything except for her torso. And I'm not talking about numbness and tingling. You know, if you sit on your, you know, you cross your legs, you go, oh my gosh, I can't, you know, numb. It's hot, electrical, shooting pain, some of the worst that you could think of. So we went to a neurologist. They're like, had a nerve conduction test, if you've ever heard of those. Um, they're terrible. Uh, they, they, they really can't numb. They put a, uh, um, an electrode into the nerve and hit it with electricity to make sure it's firing like it's supposed to, and then map what happens. Did that once. They go, everything's looking fine. We don't know. So we were scheduled to go to another neurologist, and then she got sick again. She ended up going into the hospital. Uh, she actually had, uh, we took her to the emergency room. She couldn't walk, literally couldn't move. She thought it was just vertigo, which she'd never had before, but got to the point where she was so dizzy, um, I ended up carrying her out to the car and taking her to the emergency room. Uh, she got to the emergency room with a 230 over 130 blood pressure, stroke level. They got her stabilized as much as they could, took her back home, she was okay. They said it was nerves and different things like that, and they said, well, her, her blood pressure was just elevated because of, the, uh, because of the vertigo, which my wife's blood pressure normally is like 90 over 60. Unless she's dealing with the kids, it might be a little higher, right? <laughs> so we took her home and her blood pressure wasn't evening out. 
So we took her back to the hospital. He immediately put her in. And they said, you have severe um, lupus in your kidney. They said, your creatinine is 10 times normal. Um, we're going to have to, she heard the worst words she's ever wanted to hear in her life. You're going to have to change your diet. It's going to be bland. You're not going to have anything. <laughs> huh? So we had the neurological stuff. That was on the side for right now while we were dealing with this. Also, when she had the severe vertigo and she got so dizzy and she had the blood pressure, she went completely deaf in her left ear. Both of her ears got really loud. Sound went off. Right one came back and the left one didn't. Well, they got her stabilized in the hospital. She was in there for, I think it was seven to nine days. This was the end of April, beginning of May of 2021. And we're trying to figure this all out. So now we have a kidney specialist. We have her normal autoimmune specialist. We have her regular doctor. And we're trying to get to a neurologist. And I don't know if you guys have ever had to have, try to have two different hospitals talk to each other. It's almost impossible. <laughs> uh, so we decided, you know what, in order to get this figured out, we need to go to Mayo. So we did. Got some referrals. And while we were down at Mayo, we went back and forth for a few months. While we were there at Mayo, they figured out, okay, well, hearing loss is gone. It's never coming back. Okay. That stinks, but at least I have one ear, right? We'll figure it out. Made conversations difficult. She was frustrated with it. But if this is what we have to deal with, this is what we have to deal with. We'll figure it out. And then they figured out once they got her on some blood pressure medication, and she wasn't taking her medication like she should, <laughs> like the doctor provided, uh, for the, the, some, some stuff that they were having her do for the kidney stuff, they figured out she didn't need any extra medication. It was actually mild systemic lupus. It had been there. They just hadn't been detecting it because the arthritis was so active. Awesome. No extra medications. You know, the hearing, we'll deal with that. Their neurological stuff. The stuff where it made her life so painful on a daily basis, where there was no rhyme or reason to it or way to fix it, where she could stand up for 10 minutes at a time sometimes, and other times three hours, and it would be okay. And sometimes where she couldn't stand for longer than 10 minutes or longer than an hour without hurting from her toes all over, sometimes sitting would help, sometimes laying would help, sometimes nothing helped. How do we deal with this? If you're gonna go anywhere, go to Mayo, right? They're one of the best places in the country, if not the world, and they really are. They're amazing. Um, the experience that we had there was phenomenal. Got the, the, the kidney stuff figured out. Got the hearing stuff figured out. Let's get the, we're going to figure out the, um, the neurological stuff. Well, as we're going down there back and forth for visits, they said, well, now by this time, she had already had two of the nerve conduction tests. I said, you know what? You've checked the main ones. We have to check all of them. So she sat there. 20 minutes, half an hour, something like that. It felt like forever for me in the room with her, and I'm sure for her too, of them going to every single nerve and trying to figure out what was going on. So when we finally left on our last trip there and came back to Nebraska, where we live, we're just waiting for them to put the results together to get back to us. We get the result call, um, I think it was middle of September of 21, after going back and forth for a few months, and... The doctor on the other end, we're doing FaceTime, Zoom, whatever it is. And uh, he says, well, we've got it figured out. Well, from past experience, like, yes, if it has a name, we can figure out how to deal with it, right? He said, you have small fiber neuropathies. The good thing is, is it's 
not deadly, it's not spreading, it's not anything you really need to be worried about. Awesome. What do we do? And he goes, have you tried Epsom salt baths? Massage therapy? I was like, okay, maybe I'm not talking to the right guy because that didn't make any sense to me. What do you mean Epsom salt baths? Well, yeah, just, I mean, trying to alleviate the pain. Well, yeah, she does that stuff, a hot bath with some essential oils and Epsom salt. Okay, well, yeah, that's, okay, yeah, but how do we fix it? What do we do? And he goes, that's all I got for you. Some pain meds. She can't take pain meds because she has a um, a stomach bleed. She's allergic to Tylenol. Um, Can't take another medication. She basically only has one pain med she can choose from ibuprofen. And she has to be careful with it because it gives her stomach problems. The other medications give her terrible reactions. So he said, well, what do you want me to do? I don't know what else to tell you. And I remember feeling one of the most helpless when we said, okay, thank you, hung up the call. And my wife looked at me and she said, I told you it was a waste of time. I told you we shouldn't go to Mayo. I went through all that pain for nothing. I'm just put on this earth to suffer and I'm tired. What would you do? How would you speak hope into somebody's life where they're in that situation? Or for the last 30 years, they've lost a little piece and a little piece and a little piece of themselves. Or they describe life like feeling like a prisoner inside of their own body. She said, I'm basically just hoping nothing else gets worse and I'm waiting to die. And I was mad. I was mad at God. Like, why did you take us through all this and not give us any answers? What's the purpose of it? Why does she have to suffer? What's the point? And I was frustrated and I was mad. And can I tell you, it's okay to be mad at God. (laughs) I had to learn that. It's okay to be mad at God. I knew that this was not going to be a fast fix. That this wasn't going to be something simple that I was just going to be able to tell her that if we just pick ourselves up and we do, you know, the the 15 invaluable laws of growth with John Maxwell, no offense to John Maxwell, right? But this wasn't going to fix it. She couldn't hear it. She was in the pit. She was in the mud. No inspirational speech was going to fix it for her. So what do I do? She would sit there on the couch for hours a day Sometimes not even sleeping because she just didn't want to escape the world. She was reading books on her phone or books just, just so she didn't have to be in her own life. Can you imagine what that's like? When life punches you in the face so hard that you don't want to get back up because you're just waiting for the next blow. It's one of the most important lessons I've had to learn in my life because I was not going to fix it for her. Can I tell you something that you've probably never heard before? You cannot give somebody else hope. We can't. Hope is something you have to find for yourself, but it's something you should never find by yourself. For so long, so many times in my life, and I've done it completely wrong, but we try to tell people that this is how you should do it. You're in the pit. This is how I'm going to get you out. Take my hand. 
They don't even have the energy to raise their hand up. Well, this is how we're going to get out of it when you don't even understand why they're there in the first place. When you don't even understand the situation, we try to fix it without understanding. Have you ever given bad advice because you didn't understand the whole situation? I have. Probably some of the worst times I've been the hurt worst in my life is by good Christian brothers and sisters who loved me and thought they were doing the right thing when they started to speak in clicheanity. You know what I mean, right? God works all things to, you know, I mean, talking in those things. And yes, it's true. Well, you just need a little more Jesus. I love Jesus with all my heart. How do you speak to somebody who just doesn't want to hear it right now, who feels abandoned? How do you speak truth into their life? How do you pull them out of the pit? You can't. The only way that person can get out of the pit is if you get down in there with them. You see, I believe that Job, everybody knows the story of Job in here. If you don't, he's a man from the Bible that had a lot, had possessions, had a family, had workers, and it was all taken away from him. His workers were killed, all of his possessions, his kids were, died. He lost everything. He was even covered from head to toe in sores. His wife was let live. We'll talk about that some other time. Okay? <laughs> There's layers here. But in the worst time of his life, I want friends like Joe because I believe he had the best friends. When they heard how bad his life was, they set off from their villages to come over and be next to him. And at seeing Job on the ground, literally covered in head to toe in sores and how much he had lost, they sat down next to him, not for an hour, not for a day, but for seven days. They didn't say a word to this man. They wept with him. They just sat there and they wept. And then they screwed it all up. Because on the seventh day, they decide need to give him advice. What have you done to put yourself in this situation? How have you angered God that you should get yourself out of this? And can I tell you, I've done that before. Like, well, what would you mess up? What would you do here with different people I've talked to? We try to fix it. They're not broken. They're hurting. The only way they're going to get through it is for somebody to love them and stand beside them and walk with them through it, sometimes at a great sacrifice to that person until they have the energy to stand up and go, okay, I'm ready to go. And then you can show them the way. But until they get there, they can't hear the rest of this. I mean, all these other sessions are about some amazing things that are absolutely true in life. But that truth, they can't hear it. And we have to stop telling people that you can get through it because I got through it. I know somebody with severe cancer who's walking through it right now. It's a life sentence. He's been dealing with it for a long time. He goes and talks to people, and it's amazing talk that he gives. He's like, I've gotten through all these things, and so can you. For the person who's sitting there in the pit, now not only are they stuck in the pit, but they've got tools that somebody threw down to them, and they're going, I don't even know how to use that thing. I don't even know what that tool is. So now not only am I stuck down here, but I feel worse about myself because if I was better, more capable, more able, stronger, insert whatever you want to here, then I could get myself out of here. And that's not the truth. Over the past 
while I've talked to a lot of different families, I've talked to a lot of different people who have gone through a lot of things. I know my story has a certain perspective, but I knew in coming to do these types of talks that I, I need to understand where a lot of other people come from. I've never lost a sibling to cancer, but I've talked to people who have. I've never lost a parent at a young age. I've talked to people who have. I never lost a baby when it was born, but I've talked to people who have. And I said, so what brings you hope? What brought you hope in the midst of it? And it was like one gentleman that I talked to whose life was so tough that he decided that he was going to go into the garage and end his life. He locked himself in the garage with the 22 rifle. His wife called her brother, his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law came over, kicked in the door, took the gun away from him. And he stood there punching his brother-in-law in the face, telling me, let me kill myself. He sat there being punched in the face and just wrapped him up and held him. Because he wasn't alone. That's the number one thing for all the people that I've talked to. They feel alone when they're in the middle of this. They stop telling people about it because people go, I'll pray for you. You know, don't tell people you'll pray for them. Pray for them right there if they need prayer. Ask them, what, what can I do to tangibly help you in those situations? The gal who lost the baby, she went home. She had two other kiddos at home. People came, oh, don't be so sad. You have two great kids. They're beautiful. They're awesome. And she said, I just want to punch them in the face. They didn't get it. They don't understand. So it was her best friend at the time who came over and said, I don't want anything from you. I'm not here for anything other than just, just sit here and cry with you. And that's what she did. She just sat there and cried and listened to her story about what she went through. I remember talking to a gal when Brandy was going, my wife was going through some different things. We're in a part of uh, uh, UNMC, um, United Nebraska Medical Center um, in Omaha. It was a spot we'd never been in before. Weirdly enough, we've been all over there with all the stuff she's gone through. Um, but I still remember sitting there and she was going back for a CT scan while we were figuring out the neurological stuff. And uh, there was a gal in front of me who was Late 60s, early 70s, sitting by herself, well put together. Nice hairdo, nice outfit. There were a couple other gals sitting over here between 70s and 80s. A couple other gals sitting over here. And then there was the, the room to go that way to take the patients out for their tests. I was just sitting there and trying not to make eye contact or, you know. All of a sudden, the gal across from me, she goes, I don't know about you ladies, but I can't do this anymore. And she reaches up. She pulls off her hair and starts rubbing her head completely bald, and she's just kind of rub, half rubbing, half scratching, and she put her hair, then I realized where I'm at, cancer ward, getting checkups, how, where the cancer's at, and she sat there, and from, I don't believe she'd ever met these other women in the room before that, she said, can I ask you ladies a question? She said, will my family ever treat me normal again? said, I know they love me, they're around all the time, but I just want some conversation to not revolve around the cancer. I know they want to help me. I know they want to get me a drink or get me some food or take care of something. She goes, but I can stand up and walk to the kitchen on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm not that far gone. I, I know they love me. She goes, I'm just, I, 
I'm so tired of not being able to have a real conversation. I just want to talk about something stupid. She said, will they ever treat me normal again? And these women, <laughs> it was a beautiful thing because they'd been there. They were there. They sat there and poured into her life and said, oh, darling, we understand. And she knew that they understood because they're literally sitting there in the middle of it. One of the worst things that we can do is give people advice when we have no idea what it's like, what they're going through. We want to help them. Our hearts go out to them. We want to be able to pick them up. But can I be completely honest? Sometimes it's because we're just tired of them going through the thing and we want to help them so that we don't have to hear about it, so that they're not struggling with it. Yes, we want them to feel better, but we feel so, so incapable of doing anything that we try to find something. We need to say something. We've got to try to help them. That's the right thing to do, right? No. Some of the greatest conversations I've ever had with people who are going through the worst things of their life was nobody ever stopped to listen. Nobody just sat, sat there and asking them questions and just sat there with them for as long as they needed. They just want to not feel alone because in the world that they're in at the time that they're in it, they feel completely alone. So if you haven't had something like this happen in your own life, I'm very glad that it hasn't, and I hope it never does. But what would you need? How would you need somebody to speak into your life if you lost your spouse, if you lost a child, if you got diagnosed with a terminal disease or something where you knew you were going to have to go through a new normal and your life was going to change forever? How would you want the people around you to come around you? I promise you, these are hard questions and probably something you haven't ever thought of. But if I can give you just a little bit of advice, just be there for those around you in whatever capacity you have. So as we were going through all of this with Brandy, I hit a point in my life where I didn't know existed. I've never, never had never hit it before, and I've never hit it since. Uh, on our last trip to Mayo, we were sitting there at a restaurant, and I ran a team. I did insurance across a couple of states. I was running an organization of 20 people, lots of moving parts and pieces. The people who took care of, uh, that I reported to, they stepped in and said, take care of your wife. They were fantastic, absolutely amazing. But still, there's 10,000 things running through your head, right? This is before we'd even gotten the results. And I can't describe it any other way than we're sitting there at the table, and I'm eating my salad. They bring out the main course. And I was so deep in thought that I hadn't even taken but one bite of my salad. My brain literally could not process whether I should eat my salad or whether I should eat my main course. Like, I, I, I sat there moving the plates, and my wife kind of looked at me weird and like, what are you doing? It's like, I had, I, I had I'd literally come to the end of myself. I put my heads in my hand, and I, and, I, and I started to cry, and I said, just give me a minute, go into the bathroom, right? Take a second there and look in the mirror and just, all right, get it together. I've got to be strong for her. It's, you know, she doesn't need to see this stuff she's dealing with a lot. Came back out. I texted my boss. I quit. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. He finally got the text about an hour later and called and said, hey, what's going on? By this time, we were on the road driving back to, back to Nebraska on our eight-hour trip. And I said, I'm done. I'm out. 
I can't do it. I have nothing. I, 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 I literally, and he asked me the most important question I've ever been asked in the midst of us hurting. What can I do to take something off of your plate? Because that's it. And I, I literally, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, well, you got a meeting coming up at the end of the week, and, you know, a seven-hour meeting you're putting on for your whole team. Don't worry about it. You can cancel it. No harm, no foul. I said, okay, I, I don't know if I'll do that, but okay. He said, you got a team coming down for training next week, and we got them. We got three guys coming down for training. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of them. And I said, okay, that's, I, I may still be coming down. I, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, well, what, what is one thing you can focus on that will make you happy right in this moment? And I literally had nothing. I, I didn't know the answer to that question. I was so wrung out of myself. And he said, this is on a Monday. He said, I'm going to be on a plane, and I'm coming to see you on Tuesday. You see, he lives in Dallas. He was in Chicago for meetings, you know, big wig meetings over my head that I didn't know about. He said, I'm coming there. I want to take you guys out to supper. No business talk. Okay. So he gets there and starts talking about the things that he'd gone through in his life. And he just showed up. He took, I didn't know how to ask him, hey, can I not do my meeting? But that took so much weight off of me. Hey, can I not go down to the training I need to be at for my guys? I got you. Don't worry about it. But him showing up meant so much to me. You see, I didn't know it at the time, but I know it now that he was in Chicago at meetings and he didn't know if he was going to have a job. He rearranged his schedule to come sit with me and Brandy to just sit there and talk and say, hey, what's going on? How can I be here for you? One of the greatest things, greatest definitions of love that I've ever heard before is doing something for somebody else when they deserve it the least at great personal cost to you. I said, yes. <laughs> Uh, one of the great, yes, uh, one of the greatest definitions of love that I've ever heard is doing something for somebody else when they deserve it the least at great personal cost to you. <laughs> somebody said that'd be my ex. <laughs> but that's what it was. I didn't know how to ask for that, but he knew because he had done things in his life. He'd never been through the exact same situation, but he'd suffered and he knew that, somebody, that he needed to be there. And he was willing to make that sacrifice even in the midst of the chaos in his life. There was one other time that spoke to me so deeply that I can't even think about it without tearing up. So this was in the middle of us going back and forth to Mayo. It was August, somewhere in there, I, before the kids went back to school. Middle of the week, we're sitting on our couch, just not wanting to engage with life, and the kids are there. And my daughter gets up to answer the door because the doorbell rang. And she's like, Dad, you need to come to the door. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. It's not a salesman, is it? Because I don't have the time for that. <laughs> and she said, no, Dad, it's not a salesman. You need to come to the door. So I got up, just ready to be frustrated. Go, open the front door, and there's my brother-in-law standing there. You see my sister and my brother-in-law, who's my best friend, live in Corpus Christi, Texas, 17 hours away. He'd used all his vacation time, sick leave, and everything for the year. He didn't have any extra. He drove 17 hours straight through to show up at my door, and he said, hey, man, you sounded like you needed a hug when we talked. 
And I gave him a hug because I couldn't believe who, who does that? Who drives 17 hours? And he said, hey, I know you guys are going through a lot. We're not here to be a burden. We don't need you to put us up. I will literally turn around and drive 17 hours back home if you guys don't have the capacity for us to be here right now. And he would have. But can I tell you what that spoke to me? I didn't know how to ask him for something like that. I didn't even know that's what I needed until he showed up. Being willing to sacrifice for other people, being willing to get in the pit is the only way that they're going to have the strength to get out and it's not on your time. Pray, listen to the Holy Spirit, listen for the inkling to be able to give them good advice as you go through. Pray over them and with them as often as you feel led. But at the end of the day, hope is not something that you can give to somebody. Hope is something you should we have to find for ourselves. We should never find it by ourselves. Thank you.